0: Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Well, I'm here with Peter Kindfield, and I am really excited to talk to you because I think that some of the things that we've shared a little bit in just preparing for this interview are things that are really important to the Forest Educator community. So, welcome to The Forest Educator.
1: Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to our talk as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm really curious to hear about your journey. What I remember is that I think you've been a teacher for a good amount of time, and you've also done a lot of alternative approaches to education. So tell me a little bit about, if you can, what your journey has been like to get to where you are and, uh, you know, Anything you feel like sharing that you feel like would be relevant?
1: I'm going to take it way back, but have no Go fear. Ahead. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the very early years. <laughs> but for me, my interest in education began because my school experience was just generally horrible. I felt like I just didn't fit in You know what I would now call a very mechanical system. Mm. I was not one of those folks who, you know, I didn't grow up with a huge forest next door. I grew up kind of suburban, you know, but where there were woods to play in. And I just found that I just felt best when I was outside. Something about being out in the natural world that really captivated me to the point where like one of my favorite activities as a kid um, was playing war games with my friends and Mm -hmm. I was a pacifist. I've been trying to sort of figure that out for a long time, and when I started thinking about this interview, it in fact came to me. I was like, of course. Like, I was crawling around in the woods on all fours with a stick in my hand, and I didn't want to hurt anyone or anything, but I really liked crawling around on the forest floor and hiding behind trees and all of that kind of stuff. You know, So my first experiences around nature and nature-based education was school for me was not a happy place and being out in the woods um, really was a happy place. And I sort of took some interesting turns because for me, I also, another big part of my personality was I loved explaining anything I learned I wanted to explain to other people. And I kind of went into the a somewhat technological direction, just because there were things that I literally could take apart. And I didn't want to take apart animals or plants, really. But I really did want to take apart my cousin's metronome. And as soon as I did, I ran around and had to tell everybody what I found inside. So sort of the education thing has been with me forever. And I ended up going to sort of skipping the sad elementary school and high school years, ended up studying psychology as an undergraduate and then getting a master's in educational psychology and switching midway to science education, um, mostly because I people were doing way more classroom-based stuff there. And so I ended up getting my PhD in science education and my focus was on humans and computers um, to begin with. And, uh, and that seemed kind of wild. I ended up doing my dissertation on, uh, in a classroom, looking at shared control in a um, community of designers. And our design project was to design a biosphere. And so we spent a year, this was a time when Biosphere 2 was kind of out in the public air a lot. We basically did a one year project to design a functioning biosphere, kind of as a motivator to learn about ecology. And what's fascinating to me, sort of looking back at my career, you know, sort of doing that older person retrospective thing, is that these pairings that have become my life work between. How are you teaching and what are you teaching about appeared there? And it even appeared, you know, sort of half of it in my in my uh, dissertation title, the idea of sharing control with kids. I Oh, I, this is sort of a funny story and it, this will come back later on this whole yeah. idea. So I want to share it with you. I had one day where I had someone else in my classroom observing. And our classroom was very, you know, like it started, you know, we broke up into groups and it I'm sure looked like nothing that other teacher had ever seen. At the end of the class, he came up to me and said, well, sure, you can do this kind of stuff in a gifted classroom. And I asked him to point out the gifted kids and eight out of 10 of the kids he pointed out were special needs kids. were in in that class because they were being mainstreamed out of special ed classes. Right. Right. uh, You know, I've heard other folks talk about this. One of the things that I think is magic about the forest. I've heard you talk about it is Mm -hmm. uh, you get out into the woods and the, hardest kid in the classroom sometimes turns into, you know, the one who wants to know about everything and who's looking around at everything and checking out everything. And it's all of those same things that made them a lousy student. You know, they couldn't sit still. They always wanted to be interacting with stuff that makes them the perfect, you know, student in a forest uh, forest education program.
0: Right. Yeah, that's exactly true. And it seems like some of the forest educators, uh, the forest school leaders are saying to me in the interviews I've done that oftentimes they're getting students who haven't fit in, you know, in, they've tried several different schools, they've tried some private schools, and then they kind of end up at the forest school because, you know, either by just (laughs) luck of the draw or attrition or, or whatever, and that they, they seem to, find a way to do a lot better in that environment yeah. and especially in those early years, which is really important. so I hundred I hundred percent agree with you on that that's it's an interesting story
1: there's a it it reminds me of a science fiction a short science fiction story that I haven't been able to find since I first read it, but it was called The Teaching Machine. Oh, at some point, I want to talk about why I use the word educator, as you do, and try to avoid the word teacher whenever I can. It was, I think, titled The Teaching Machine. And the basis of the story was everyone just sort of hung out until they were 16 or 17 and did whatever they wanted to do in this future society. And then when they were 17, they went and got tested. They found out what their aptitudes were. They plugged into this machine for a week, and then they were whatever they wanted to be. So this guy wanted to be an engineer and he tested and to his horror not only was he not going to be trained as an engineer but he was denied access to any kind of training wow and they told him to just you know go to this place and he was decimated, but he went to the place, and I think he goes in the back door or whatever, and the place is full of books and all kind of stuff like that, and uh, basically the punchline is he finds out that this is the Institute of Higher Learning, that all of the people who couldn't be programmed, what I would call non-conforming folk got pulled out. Um, They found out that the disadvantage of going through the machine was people lost all their creativity. And so they started pulling all of these special folks to go to the Institute of Higher Learning. And I think of those kids that we get, you know, in the forest schools or the home schools or when I was coordinating the farm school as all of the people who were fortunately rejected from the machine in one way or another. and I want to say, and I've also heard you say this, I'm very critical of public education. Public mm. school teachers are my heroes. right? And I just want to make that distinction, that when I talk about the machine, I'm not talking about the human beings who are trying to take care of the kids inside the machine. I'm talking about the machine.
0: Yes, yeah, that's true. That's 100% true. I feel the same way. Well, it's and it's interesting because it seems like for, you know, decades, in my experience, that the approach, the modern educational approach has been that dominant force of this is how we do it. This is what we need to prove that we're doing something. This is how we measure all those things, which are, you know, has sort of worked for some children. There are some people that do work in that. And then there's a lot that don't. It, It feels like right now that there are a number of areas in which it's starting to break down to where there aren't enough people where it's working for them, or the teachers, or some of the administrators, it's not working enough that they're actually going, Uh Oh, this is, this is no, you know, the, the emperor's wearing no clothes here a little bit, or boy, we're missing something in a big way. And this is going to go really off the tracks pretty fast. I think we're we're starting to see how that is starting to unravel a little bit. Maybe it's the pandemic, I think, was one big factor. And I also know a lot of teachers are getting out. You know, that's, that's a big, big problem. So I want to come back to
1: my sort of history at some yes. point. But I want to follow up on that point because I think it's super important. One of the things that I feel pretty strongly about public education, I started out with the idea that it was, you know, broken and that people were starting to realize it was broken. I evolved to a feeling of it does what it was designed to do, and that some people make it through that process okay, or that the schools fail to do what they were designed to do. But I really think what they're designed to do is make good consumers and a passive workforce. Right and the other thing when i hear you talk about unraveling it reminds me of charles eisenstein's book the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible where he basically says you know he posits a story of interdependence as being the sort of traditional old traditional story a story of separation and power over as the modern story and then, you know, whatever is going to come next. And what he says is that the whole story of separation, that whole, you know, extraction, colonial model, whatever different people talk about it, it's starting to unravel everywhere. You know, everyone's yeah. starting you know, to go, huh, the climate is changing. Huh. You know, my kids, you know, don't like being in school. Huh. I don't even like teaching in school with all the testing. And it it it's sort of, I think the whole system is reaching a breaking point.
0: Yeah, I think you're I absolutely think you're right. And it's interesting because uh in in some cases, I know, you know, it's kind of a yin and yang, like the social media aspect of our world has a very profound negative divisive quality, you know, to it, where it's just like, oh, let's argue, argue, argue and stay online. But there's another side of it that's really interesting because. Social media has given everyone the power of sharing their experiences and sharing their stories. You know, like you can go on TikTok and listen to a 100 videos of someone who's breaking down their experience as a teacher or as a parent. or And and it's giving people really clear insight in a way where there's no gatekeeper. We don't have to filter it through Walter Cronkite or, and, you know, yeah. CBS or ABC or any of those other networks to get the approved, not, not that they were editing it horribly necessarily, but we just kind of like got a very filtered um, news source or information source. So w- when we have more information, we're getting a whole different picture, just like, like the strike right now with the Hollywood writers, you know the all the screenwriters, and then on top of that, the actors and then we're having we, we get to see firsthand like oh okay this is how much ceos are making this is how much the you know kind of average actor makes this is how much the writers make and so because of that we're we have access to that information and we're able to repeat that enough to it, people really can see maybe what's going on you know obviously we it's always somewhat subjective but yeah so it's it, all of this is uh you know the times we're in i guess so Um, So before I
1: leave, I'm going to return to my time um, working on my dissertation in that classroom and point out two sort of curious things. One is, to the best of my knowledge, we never went outside as a class. And that trajectory from there to where I am now was a big part of my story Uh, because even though I was focused, and I wouldn't have said it this way, but I was focused on creating a learning environment that felt more like playing in the forest than it did working in a factory, we were still in a building that looked an awful lot like a factory. um yeah and i think that that change you know from that to where i am now has been huge um the other is that i just want to sort of throw out one of my many bumper sticker lines which i think i thought of you know right around that time where this guy thought he was in a gifted class and what i what that line is we all have special needs we're all gifted we all deserve an individualized educational program
0: yeah right exactly that's that's really uh in a nutshell how i think we've learned as a human species you know by by far the you know 99.8% of the time is that we learned from our uncles and our cousins and our uh, you know people in our smaller groups and everybody kind of knew everyone else and then they we could kind of modulate what our what stories were shared and what approaches and so very very much that's how it was it really we really only had like modern schooling for I don't know maybe what three cent two centuries maybe or something Um,
1: very short history
0: right right so so pretty much prior to that it was really a different situation and I mean, it's what's so, so interesting to me is that I can think of like how, you know, what are the advances that we've had as we've, you know, taught our children, you know, things that we've learned about science and biology and cell, you know, set the cells and immunology and medicine and physics and everything else, chemistry. As we've done that, it's been like an, inc- there's an incredible uh, wealth of knowledge and understanding that we've, that we've come to see. And, you know, at the same time, we're also paying the price of a warm, you know, rapidly warming planet and income inequality and everything else. So it's kind of it's it's sort of like a really interesting situation that we find ourselves as as educators in the middle of a situation where we're like, okay, we're in late stage capitalism, which we don't know where that's going to go, but it doesn't look good. And then at the same time, we're at the, the climate change threshold and we're like that's not looking good especially if you're living in the southern states getting baked alive so you I, I look at the whole thing and go hmm, this is this is where we find ourselves and at the same time we do know that we have something that's working and so i'm curious as to what what are some things that really worked for you uh, as an educator that you started finding out when you did go outside
1: can i Take a step back and just get there through a twisted path. And you may have to remind me of the originated question. So, you know, one of the, just a couple of other quick historic highlights is yeah. that I, I, when I was working as a district um, science coordinator and a science professor in New York City, I went to a conference called Dealing with Diversity. And the longer I was in this conference, the more horrified I became. And the, the source of my horror was that I have always sort of thought like an ecologist. And I'm sitting there going, why is this conference, which it's not like a bunch of old white guys. In fact, I was the closest thing to an old white guy, I think, in the whole conference. Why are we talking about diversity as a problem? Like that's what makes the world work. Yes. Um, and that's kind of what led me to my hypercritical that I think that diversity is a problem in school because of the focus is
0: on conformance. It's probably a lot to do with the fact that the more diverse your situation, the much harder it is to make any kind of valid assessment, right? So it's kind of like if we get, oh yeah, we're going to compare whales, bats, and uh, ants. And then, you know, you kind of go, all right, well, it sure is hard to categorize this and then come up with a standardized test or or something. So we're somehow we don't really we haven't really evolved. The educational system hasn't evolved enough to appreciate those diversity pieces and then tackle that as a problem rather than yeah. seeing it as a gift. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a short piece once about trees and the different ways that a ranger and a lumber mill person relate to trees, right? right? And at the lumber mill, all the diversity is garbage. We want to get uniform two, down to the uniform two by fours. And, you know, the ranger or the permaculturalist or the regenerative agriculturalist looks at the tree and goes, you know, what what does it have going for it? The assessment is what is it, what's it struggling with? What's it doing well with? How can I help it? Um, and I think those different points of view are are pretty important. All right, let me stop hey, hey. my silly sticking to trying to get through my whole history. I, no, I ended up getting a permaculture, You know, I ran into permaculture at some point. I spent 15 years as the director of the farm school in Tennessee. And those same 15 years, I coordinated a summer program for inner city kids that would come down and visit us at the farm. I started using the metaphor a lot of factory schooling and talking about how factory schooling prepared people to consume things made in factories and to work in factories, but not much else. And I didn't know what to call sort of the other side. And for a long time, I called it, I just called it uh, community-based schooling.
0: Right, right. And,
1: and what happened while I was at the farm school is, um, after being a uh, science professor and being in classrooms where, or and observing student teachers in classrooms and saying, "Hey, let's go outside and look at the clouds," you're talking about, and having the teacher go, "That's a field trip. I have to submit paperwork six months in advance before I step out the front door of the school." That um, now I was at the farm school and was kind of coordinating activity there. I naturally started drifting my education outside more and more. We mm. had some unfinished classrooms that became outdoor classrooms where we planted gardens. Uh, the woods became, you know, that third teacher that the, is that Reggio folks? No, Forest School talk about the, yeah. you know, the outdoors as, as a teacher itself and we started doing outdoor weeks i ran into um the eight shield folk and bought my copy of coyotes guide uh, which i still think is an excellent source for outdoor activities and it's really then where i started becoming an outdoor educator and i ended up um leaving there about five years ago and a friend of mine said peter what are you going to do now what do you want to do that now that you're not coordinating the school and i was like I don't know. That's the thing I love the most. <laughs> and um and then I had a permaculture moment where I thought about, well, what's what did I love the most? And it turned out it was not coordinating the school. It was being a, a teacher and having the freedom, you know, to teach in a way I believe wasn't, you know, was right. <laughs> and then i realized that it wasn't just teaching it was in fact my teaching outdoors that was the most fun yeah so for the last four years i've just been doing nature-based uh nature connection and nature-based science classes mostly as homeschool enrichment classes and i also wrote a bunch of activities and i'll come back and talk about that at some point at the beginning of covid because I realized, oh my God, there's all these people who are homeschooling for the first time. And I bet they're all going to have a tendency to want to um, replicate uh, replicate public school at home. And I wanted to give them an alternative. And I wanted to say, please don't do that for several reasons. One is, I don't think it does what we want it to do. And the second is, we don't have the resources to pull it off. Um, you know, and and so you need to look at a different way of, of doing things.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. so what ages were you have you been working in the last five years? what, what um, of, uh, so over working?
1: the last five years, I've
0: worked with kids from two to uh
1: sixteen. Okay. and the the little little ones is a I've done a toddler class, which is toddlers and parents. And then I did a a mixed class with sort of two to four-year-olds where some of the older kids attended on their own and the younger kids had their parents with them. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is that at some level, what we do is the same in all the classes, you know, which is wander around in the woods. (laughs) Yeah. And, and in some ways, you know, it's very different. Some of them sort of obvious. I don't give the two-year-olds saws and knives, generally speaking. (laughs) Um, uh, But, you know, there's some other small differences, but it sort of fits into that uh, circular curriculum idea that you can look at things sort of over and over and over again in deeper ways as you go on.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: So so you had asked the question so what are some things that work so for me my core idea is that you know this that forests and factories operate in very different ways um and i'm going to talk about a couple of features although there's many and they overlap and other people could come up with their own list i think what's interesting about this is not the is the idea, uh, is not the particular ways that you characterize the forest and the factory, but it's how do we figure out how to integrate Mm -hmm. those things? So one of the things, one of the examples I like to talk about is forests are all about uh, self-control, not in the word it was used when I was failing self-control in public school, and I'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. But individual organisms are all kind of trying to take care of their own needs. And the organization arises out of that self-control and self-direction. Factories are characterized by other control. Um, You know, the machines do one thing over and over again, as do the poor humans in general um, who have to work in them. And the the irony, the quick story about me failing self-control is I recently realized I was great at self-control. They just didn't have the chutzpah to call what I failed what it was, which is what I failed was other control. I right. did not do well being told what I was supposed to do six hours in a row. It mm-hmm. just didn't work for me. So you have the the other control of the factory, the self-control of the forest, how do you synthesize those? And when I say synthesize, I don't mean randomly stick them together. You know, there's an approach that I actually admire in a lot of ways, but it was a friend of mine, Sylvia Chard, talked about the project approach. And in her schools, what they did was sort of factory school in the morning and then sort of choice school in the afternoon. that's not a synthesis. That's, you know, in in coming from a Chinese perspective, that's not Tai Chi, the integration of yin and yang. That's just yin and then yang. So so in terms of self-control and other control, what is the synthesis? And at some point when I realized this, I just had to laugh because it goes all the way back to the title of my dissertation, shared control. So in terms of things that I do that work is in a bunch of different ways with kids two to 16, we share control of activity, right? I don't love the phrase uh, child centered or student centered, because I, while I do think, you know, it kind of reminds me of saying we want schools that are more like forests and less like factories which is really sim- a, a simplification. I really want to unify those two in, the way, in a way that works. So with control, you know, rather than shared control is not letting the kids do whatever they want to and then me bossing them around for the next half hour. Right. It's figuring out a way that moment by moment, what we're doing is co-determined. And I sort of talk about what are the roles of educators in schools, and I use two different metaphors. One is guide, and the other is mediator. And mediator, I don't mean like settling disputes between the kids, although sometimes that's the job. But for me, I'm mediating between the kids' wants and needs, what's happening in the outside world, And for me, the reason why I'm not an unschooler or a free schooler is I have urgent content I want kids to learn. I think that the kids in my classes now are going to be in a totally different world than the one we're living in now. I think 30 years from now things are gonna be very, very, very different. And I feel a certain urgentness in preparing them for right. that. I think that there's an urgentness to for humanity to go from, you know, I've been playing around with using these words and now I'm, I'm several steps away, so you're gonna have to steer me back to where we started. But I've been playing around with different words for what is it that we're synthesizing. And the funniest pair to me. And I don't think it, it necessarily works. But I realized at some point a couple of days ago, I went, I'm probiotic. <laughs> um, and then I went, yeah. you know, that's a simple way to tell the story that I want to tell is that I think that traditional folks were probiotic for the same reasons that everything in nature is probiotic or, you know, I would say pro ecotic, you know, it's pro ecosystem, because if you kill your ecosystem, you die. Yeah. So, you know, humanity's first shot was probiotic. And then somehow we, when we went down the design path and the comfort path, we made some wrong turn. And I don't, know whether it was necessary or not. But the turn we took was to become antibiotic, to really be at war with nature, to do things that are just, if you look around the natural world, if you use science and you go, what happens in nature? Let's see. Nobody concentrates uranium to the point where it's going to blow up. Nobody makes toxins that last forever. The, the right. biggest net you know, human toxin you can find in nature is urasol. It breaks down in about five years. And I wanted to compare that to plastic and did some research. And basically what they say is plastic only breaks down into polymer molecules. It doesn't break down much further than that in thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So, right. so we went from being probiotic to antibiotic. And now the question is, how do we synthesize the two? and for me you know a, a big piece of that is preparing our children to be able to do that synthesis and a big piece of that is by having done that synthesis ourselves as educators or at least be working on it so right. that the learning environments we're nurturing are consistent with the way of being this pro way of being or ecological way of being that we want yes
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me when I think of, you know, like where we are now and where we might be in 30 years from now or where we might want to go. I really wonder, I'm always trying to kind of think of like, well, we know there are big barriers, you know, one of which is power, concentrated power and also money and, you know, forces that want to keep things the way they are because it's beneficial for them. And then at the same time, I look at it and go, well, if those if if those barriers were gone, we may be in a situation where even if we did suddenly switch things over, we'd have a pretty chaotic experience (laughs) because it's difficult to live in community. It's difficult to to work things out and to, you know, coexist. You know, we we struggle, at least I, I know for sure in America, we definitely do that. And we also tend to over idealize things. So like, you know, when you have someone who's like, oh, I'm a vegan or I'm a, you know, I have a special diet and I can only eat certain things. And those things only come from Japan or they come from places really far away, like quinoa or wherever you kind of look at this and go, yeah, you know, so much of our lifestyle is propped up by these kinds of. Hidden toxic systems that we just kind of conveniently try not to think about, right? So, so if we really become probiotic, it's it it actually forces us to then say, "Hey, what could we live? How could we live in a way that, you know, is it possible to kind of live live a probiotic way, and also maintain some of the things that we've gained in a?" You know, in our current situation, like, for example, modern medicine or something like that, where yes. you go, hey, I'd sure like to not die because I get have an appendicitis or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, a couple of things on that. I mean, one is just sort of outside the sphere of education, I guess, but I'm also, you know, part of a group called Deep Adaptation, the Deep Adaptation Forum. And it's a group, you know, one of many that we call ourselves Collapse Aware.
0: Yes, and
1: I don't believe that there's going to be gentle changes that are going to get us through the climate crisis. I think that we are in a crisis that, that it's possible that we still need to see how the natural world responds to us now being above the highest temperature ever recorded in an interglacial time. You know, everyone likes to talk about, oh, it go- always goes up and down. Well, we're now up further than it's ever been before so how's gaia gonna respond we don't know and human extinction is distinctly possible my thing is that by being ecological we accomplish four things we slow the collapse so that humanity and plants and other species you know have a chance to you know migrate adapt whatever, to some extent, you know, I'm very aware as a person who's getting older, as I guess we all are, but I'm, I'm closer to the end of my life than I am to the beginning. I'd like to die with some style. And I think if we as a species are going out, I feel the same way. I'd like to go out rather than beating the shit out of the planet. I'd like us to go out as a species doing our best to take care of the planet. Yeah. And I also think that for our individual well-being, it's the best thing we can do. It's, you know, people in the deep adaptation group talk a lot about, well, what do you do when you become aware that you don't know what world your kids are going to grow up? And the best thing I think we can do is, you know, or one of the things we need to do is take care of our own well-being and the well-being of the kids. And Mm. The kids find that that the collapse thing less depressing. It's not something they're unaware of. Particularly the older kids, they find it way less depressing. Just know that knowing that there is another way to live,
0: and being out in the woods and connecting with nature, just as good for our mental health. Right, and I, I mean to me, a lot of it is also getting a, giving them an experience of something that's completely different than the dominant kind of consumer-based culture so when we're making things when we're exploring things when we're i I used i like to say that nature is a child's first intimate relationship right outside of their parents or something and so when you the more we give them those opportunities they have a chance to actually build that inner world and build that connection which doesn't necessarily mean that you know when a child comes to one of my summer camps that for a week that they now can survive the coming earth changes, you know, after a week of learning how to make fire and build a shelter, it's like, all right, there's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But what we're trying to do is at least lay, get, lay the, put the seeds in of these experiences that they can then draw from in five years, 10 years, 15 years or or beyond. Yeah. When I talk
1: about the kids to the country program. I use the language transformative experience. You know, we did what was really a three-day program. Kids would come on Monday afternoon and leave Thursday afternoon, Uh, you know, come Monday at noon and leave Thursday at noon or thereabouts. And really the whole idea of them was both in terms of nature and in terms of their social experience to just, you know, to wrap them in nature and to wrap them in love. To not teach them, it really wasn't our goal, but just as you said, to have a different kind of experience and a different kind of connection and to have kids who were, you know, horrified of the possibility. I'm not going in that swimming hole. There's fish in there. You know, to get from that to just having kids walk outside just to sit on the steps and just look at the sky and just Mm. listen to sounds that were at cars honking and things like that does present this other way. Yeah. um, That who knows what effects it has further down the road.
0: A hundred percent. That's true. I know I I used to, when I was running my summer camps, you know, all summer long, one of the things that was one of my focuses that, The children would come because they wanted to learn about nature and, you know, crafts and wilderness survival, so to speak. And so on an intellectual level, we would give them those things. We would give them activities to do, things to work with their hands. They would be immersed in nature. Oftentimes, we'd play games that the goal of the game, you know, the goal of the game for me was that the kids were all going to be laying down and, like you said, hiding from, you know people coming through. So the whole idea was for them to get an experience of laying on the earth behind a log. And there'd always be some child that would say, oh, I was laying there. And all of a sudden, I looked or I was just laying there looking with one eye, you know, in the leaves, and I saw a mouse looking, you know, right back at me from inside this hollow log. Or they would have a bird come and hop on them or something. And I would always think like, that's actually the real reason why we played that game. I really don't care if they hide or if they're camouflaged or whatever, that just keeps, that just gets them into that experience without them knowing it. So the, their body is going to now reawaken to that, you know, just yeah. like walking through the brush and getting their, the the branches are going to awaken the skin on their, on their legs as they sort of sw- sweep by and scratch them a little bit and just waking up parts of their body. That's kind of what I like really enjoyed about it. Yeah. So it's kind of nice because I can actually teach in these different layers, you know, so there's an intellectual layer and they think, okay, I know what's happening. And then there's this body centered awareness experience. And then there's of course an emotional, hopefully an an emotional safety layer. And, and then that community layer too, hopefully.
1: The, when you're talking about those nature games that also, you know, I've, I have played with kids. One of the things Mm -hmm. that I think of is like, I I have a couple of pictures I took of kids in the woods where they're 15 feet from me. And I challenge people to find the kids Mm -hmm. because they're just in this tree in a way that, and what I say is there's this, you know, my, my first statement was that kids and adults are in, the forest in a different way. That adults are in the forest, like going to one of those aquariums where you walk down the hallway and you're surrounded by fish above you and to both sides, but there's a glass wall between you and you're in an air conditioned hallway. That that's adults in the forest. And that my experience of kids in the forest is they're just in it. They're in it like roots the forest is all over their face and their faces, they leave a little bit of their face in the forest. And, you know, kids who grow up in the woods sort of have that naturally and kids who don't. Yeah, that's like, you know, one of the, even when I'm teaching one of my nature-based science classes where I have like a curriculum and I want them to learn about, you know, material cycles and homeostasis maintenance and all of that stuff. We still spend a ton of time, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. with our faces in the dirt and, and climbing trees and, and sliding down boulders and leaving pieces of herself on the boulders.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's great.
1: The first general piece of advice I would say for particularly for teachers who are afraid of taking kids outside is if you have any pathway that you can do it, do it. Right. And Horace will teach you and the kids, because really that's how, you know, that's certainly how I came up with a lot of the things that I do is like, you can talk kids into marching single file in a school building. It's exhausting to try to do yeah. that outdoors, right? right? So it just, you know, the direct experience sort of opens one up. And then the others are, you know, I would say, consider like, well, you know, we get all through our teacher education, that kind of our job is as, you know, although people talk about it Mm -hmm. using different language, all the testing and the system is just set up that transferring information from here to there, you know, is what the goal is supposed to be. And so, well, if that's not your goal anymore, if you're not gonna be teaching all the time, what are you gonna be doing? Yeah. So, you know, I already mentioned one, which is being a mediator between what the kids are needing, what's happening in the world around you. Is it raining? Is there a frog on a tree? You know, what's going on? And the ideas that you're hoping that the kids are going to start making sense of. And so to go out with those three things in mind, and I do this uh, sort of two-step lesson planning, where I'll always have kind of the big ideas I'm I'm hoping to talk some about, and then some particular activities that relate to those ideas. But so so one role, you know, is as the mediator, and that means you know pay attention. You're trained to assess assess what the kids are wanting and needing, you know, ask them, assess what is happening around you, and Think about what kinds of stuff could we do when we look for opportunities to sort of talk about, you know, some concept. And there are probably going to be many out in the woods. So yeah. there's the mediator role. And then there's the other I mentioned early on that I um, don't much like the word um, teacher, but I like the word educator. I looked it up and looked at its roots and um, it comes from. Educar, which is to lead out. Uh-huh. So, I... you know, most of us spend all of our time thinking about how we can contain kids. And while I think, just like everything else, the leading out and the containing need to be synthesized in a meaningful way, given that as a teacher just braving the outdoors, your mindset is, how can I contain them? try and think about it a little bit differently try and think about how you can lead them out into this world and help them make sense of it instead of how you can contain their energy um how can you use their energy
0: yeah, so, yeah i think you i think you're 100% right about that and i like i i think that that in some ways is one of the one of the things i've seen in in after school programs is that there's teachers that have been teaching all day with these children And like you said, control, control, you know, very much like this is what we're learning right now. Boom, boom, boom. Do this, do that. And then it's after school and the children just want to say, look, you know, stop telling me what to do. And so when I would come in, I would approach it in that way. And I remember one of the teachers came up to me at the end of the class and she said, you know, Ricardo, when I first started watching you teach, I saw that you, be very loose with the children, like letting them do a lot of different things. And I got really panicked because I'm like, I don't know if he's actually paying attention. She said, luckily, I, she goes, I pulled, I pulled back a little bit and just decided to let you just see what you did. How did it work out? She said, every time I saw someone do something that maybe was dangerous, you would then go, Hey, come on over here. Or, Hey let me show you something. Like she saw that I was actually paying attention even though it didn't look like I was paying attention and I was keeping them safe and she saw that that it was organized loosely organized chaos and she just said, "Boy, it, it she goes, "My whole head was just turned around because I was watching something else happen than what I've done for years and years." Nice. And so she just she was just telling me this because she was like trying to process what is it that was going on and really appreciated that because to me, I just do that naturally. And I I do think it is helpful for a teacher. If you want to learn to take children outside, educate outside that probably finding somebody else who's already doing that and maybe going and maybe shadowing them or, being out there would be a really good way to build your confidence. Because if you see someone do it for five times or 10 times, you're going to get much better at doing that. Or even like working at a summer camp in the summer, because summer camps do that all the time. And I
1: realize I have have one other sort of concrete piece of advice that kind of also ties Mm. back into this theoretical underpinning. Um, We talked about other control, self-control being synthesized into shared control. A friend of mine recently taught me these two words that characterize this other forest factory dichotomy that can be synthesized. I knew one of the words chronos. So it turns out the Greeks have two words for time, chronos and karos. Chronos is like it's time for class to start. You know, the clock says it's nine o'clock. It's time to start. And um Keros is I need a hug now. <laughs> right. Or it's a good time to plant a seed. Or um it's time in the sense of it's time to do this because it's the right time. Yeah. So, you know, forests, there's no Kronos, it's all Kairos. Factories, it's all it's all Kronos, there's no Karos. Right. And For me, putting those things together is I call responsive scheduling.
0: Oh, I Um, love that phrase.
1: So, for me, you know, like the first time I saw it was in the you know Coyotes guide mentions you know plan activities at the most where I think they say two thirds of the time, you know. So obviously, one of the ways of being responsive is you know leaving free space, but there are tons of other ways to be responsive also, like. Not, uh, I heard someone else say this recently, not throwing out your curriculum necessarily, but just, you know, saving it for another day. I rarely, rarely get to everything I planned. I would say, right. you know, it's an extraordinary day when I do. And I tell people it didn't look like me following a plan. I guarantee you. It yeah. just happened that on this particular day, Shit happened, so we got all the stuff done that I was thinking about getting done. But it also means, you know, if the kids say they're really tired, and they really are, and you're just going to make them miserable by doing what you wanted to do, then don't do it. You know, if some if you run into something super cool, you know, there's all these long decaying trees up here because I live where it's very dry, and you can see these internal things that sort of show you how the branch grew from the inside of the tree out, and it's just fantastic to look and spend all day talking about that. It's fine, and right. so um, so I guess you know my other piece would be you know let go of the idea that of lesson planning. I had someone who who worked for me at the farm school who I hired despite her saying this to begin with. She said she was gonna have 180 lesson plans done before school started. And I was like, oh my God, that's in my head, that's awful. Like, like I don't know how you're going to possibly, why you would want to do that. You've got kids to follow. You've got kids to meet where they are and bring in the direction you were hoping to bring them, but you don't even know them yet. So maybe plan the first day how you're going to get to know them. Maybe think about what you'd like to do in a very broad way, you know, like, for me, I want them to think about interdependence and I want them to have some idea of material moving around ecosystems. And I, you know, I'll document before I do classes what I'd like them to get out of the 12 weeks of class. Yeah. But but on any given day, you know, there's gotta be a lot of responsiveness built in. And yeah. and then I would just reassure people of what you said. It's not that alternative education or forest-based education or whatever it is, it's not that it is unstructured. It's differently structured. Yes, yeah, and you just have to learn a different, you know, way. And and I agree with you. I think mentoring or shadowing or, um, you know, I just did a class for teachers at I live in Idawild, California. There's an international arts school here, and I did a class for the teachers on uh, I think I just titled it moving your classes outside and what it was was it was mostly me doing what I do with kids sure sure except the content was you know kind of teaching yeah but we also (laughs) like I showed them my lesson plan which we got to half of it and we did all kinds of things that weren't on it You know, and so they got the visceral experience of, holy shit, I learned a lot in two hours and we were just walking through the woods. Yeah. You know, so I do think having some experience with it is good before you just run outside with 30 Mm -hmm. children. And then also for what it's worth, you know, I, you know, having the numbers, right? Like, do you, when you do your after school programs, was it like you and 30 kids or-
0: it, sometimes sometimes it was uh, a lot of times it depends a lot on sports so you know if basketball season was in session sometimes we'd have 12 and then practice would get over and we'd suddenly have i'd be halfway through a lesson and all of a sudden there'd be like eight kids or 10 kids would show up and go hey we want to do whatever you're doing And you're like oh okay yeah. so um, you know the
1: other the other advice I would have for beginning teachers taking their classes outside is have a really high ratio of teachers to students. Yeah,
0: that's a big help.
1: I absolutely believe you could pull off a class of 30, and I think I could as well outside. I don't think it's uh, particularly not with knives and fire.
0: Well, you you know what's interesting too, and this is another element that I think teachers might be bumping up against, is that they go, hey, I'm coming from the Kronos type system, and then I'm going into the caro system, trying to try that out. And then the fear oftentimes is, well, how quickly is I, am I going to be judged or are these children going to be held to a certain standard of, Oh, did you guys go outside and then learn everything about the California redwood ecology or whatever it is. Right. Uh, and so it's like, well, you can't, you can't, uh, it's difficult to serve two masters or five masters. Like in other words, you either have to dive into one and then just really guard that that experience and and make sure that it's not getting subjected to, you know, someone who's coming from another perspective doesn't have any idea what you just did. Uh, just so that you know, the good things that will come out of that will infiltrate the other things going on in their schooling that are in the old system. And, the new, the other.
1: What I can say is I, because I do, you know, I have come out this all as a science teacher. I have my own internal pressures. And what I have discovered is that absolutely, the less I worry about how much kids are learning, the more they learn. Right. Absolutely a hundred percent of the time.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and it's stunning to me the depth of the learning. And, you know, I do stuff like I teach organic chemistry in mm-hmm. the forest. I've had kids show me, hey, Peter, look, I modeled a CO2 molecule using snowballs and twigs. Yeah, nice. Um, you know, yeah. it, it it is. It is just, um, I mean, it's funny because this is is bigger than just teaching. This, I I also teach adults Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. And one of my big messages to students is don't worry about what you're doing. You are learning, you don't, if you spend your time critiquing yourself, oh, I'm not learning anything, then you won't, and if you just let go, it'll happen, and the same is true if you're learning to teach outside, if you constantly worry about, you know, just, you have to get into the mindset of playing in the woods, you're playing in the woods with the kids, and and feel playful, Mm -hmm. and then, yeah, if your interest is teaching, things that you think are super important, like I do. I mean, I want to make sure all these kids know how to grow food because I think they may have to grow their own damn food. And I want them to know how to gather because they may have to gather their own food. right. And I care deeply as much as any state standards board does about them achieving their instructional objectives, which may be different, but I still really want them to achieve it. And I just find that if I worry about them achieving it, I have a miserable class and it doesn't work very well. And if I relax and let it happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is really good, the things you're talking about. And thank you're talking about them both on a minute level and also on a macro level. And it's just so clear that you've um, thought about this a lot. You've put it into practice and seen it work in various ways. And I just really appreciate you doing that and then being willing to share so so freely about it. I really, that's it's great. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. And while we're doing thank yous, I wanted to do this at the beginning. Yeah. I love your definition of like i've been thinking about who is my audience Mm -hmm. forever and forest educators as you've defined it as people who find themselves outside trying to help people learn um really is the the audience and i think we forest educators really are a very important um group right now and then i also you know appreciated and and already told you i i like that you use the word educator Yeah. because it just goes with, we're basically, you know, we're all forest guides one way or another. We're all trying to guide folks out into the forest.
0: I think, I think so for sure. And I, and I know that, uh, you know, everybody, you know, there's so many different types of educators that uh, people that are just doing things. Some of them are, are people that are educating us through their, through what they're just, their actions, you know, they're inspiring us. Other people are, you know, photographers or videographers, people that are just role modeling different ways of living, all, all of these things really kind of can fall under uh, this umbrella. So, but, but I really liked your uh, element of science, you know, science teacher turned uh, nature educate, you know, nature educator. And uh, I just think that that's, you know, I think a lot of people might go, well, oh, you know, it's great if you're if you're three years old and you're just wanting to learn how to crawl over a log, then forest education is probably pretty good. But right. it's really different to understand that you can teach really important ecological concepts in this completely different style and and have it be very profoundly effective. So That's something that a lot of people don't realize. I I think that they may think, oh yeah, it's great when the kids are kindergarten, forest kindergarten, forest preschool. I don't usually hear about forest college or, or for, I haven't heard of a forest PhD of, you know, whatever. And so this is where I think that we can hopefully make some inroads into this. I agree. Yeah. I'm excited about how, uh, about hearing about where, where you go from here too. And please, uh. We'll definitely stay in touch for sure.
1: Excellent. Well, I look forward to talking with you more off camera and on.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit, uh, is there? Is there? A, do you have a website or any way that people can kind of get a hold of you or find out what types of programs you might be offering?
1: Sure. I have a, a couple of things. If you look up Peter Kinefield on Substack, I have a blog that I just started relatively recently. I've got a group called Ecological Education on Facebook. Okay. That's got a good collection of sort of forest-based educators. I have our company, which is called Hilltop Education Connections. We have a website, hilltopeducation.com. And then uh, I also coordinate the Deep Adaptation Educators Group. And so if you Google Deep Adaptation and hunt
0: around to the forum. Yeah, if you can uh, send me those links, I'll make sure that those are in the show notes. This is great. Yeah, well, thanks and keep, keep doing this great work and uh, stay cool out there. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature.